You're listening to The Snap Hook with Tim Costello and Scott Barzilla. Join us as we take a look at all things sports and politics in the world that we live in today. Yeah, I, I don't want to share a beer with the leader of the free world at the end of the day, right? Over 300 house races are non competitive If you look through, it's been Republicans in charge. We try and help you understand the political news by comparing it to our sports stories of the day. And just like a snap hook, we're coming in from the left side of the fairway. People who are in control of things decide this person has displeased us. Snap Hook listeners, welcome back to part two of our weekly conversation. Tim Costello, as always, joined with Scott Barzilla. Scott, how are we doing? Oh, we are doing great. Um, I hope yeah, yesterday uh, everybody caught our comments yesterday. Uh, so I want to lead off the show with a conversation we started during yesterday's political conversation. And we were talking about the Brandon Miller case, which obviously has a lot more to do with sports maybe than politics, so probably fits more in this conversation. So we're going to lead off with some Brandon Miller talk. Yeah, he's as you mentioned, it's it started our conversation in part one. We kind of went down the line a little bit more um, of, of how situations like this happen. So if you haven't uh, heard part one, you know, hop on, check it out. But if you're just joining us for part two, you're not necessarily missing out on the sports side of, of where this conversation could go. So kind of to lead us off, uh, we want to try and figure out, so Brandon Miller, if you don't want to listen to the first half, please do. But if you don't want to, uh, back in January, uh, one of his ex-teammates uh, and a friend uh, texted him, asked him to bring his gun. Uh, and so we know the gun was brought. We know the gun was used to kill a woman. We don't know if Brandon Miller knew that was going to happen. We don't know if he even read the text necessarily before he, you know, he left. Uh, you know, we don't, we don't know if he, you know, maybe tried to get him not to do it. We, we don't know anything about the particulars of that situation. All we know is, is that, he brought a gun that was used to kill a person. And so this is where, you know, this is where Alabama was. This is where Alabama ended up. And Alabama's known all this since January, and they decided they're going to let Brandon Miller play. Why are they going to let Brandon Miller play? Because he's their best player. I mean, he just can't, you know, he came off of beating South Carolina scoring 41 points. Now, granted, it was an overtime game, but, you know, this kid could play. I mean, if you took this situation out of it, Brandon Miller is a lottery pick. He might be a top five overall selection even now. So the question is, on the sports side of things, is what should be going on with Brandon Miller? What should the NCAA be doing if they, you know, they haven't been doing it? What should Alabama be doing? That hasn't happened. And, and if you listen to the, the first part of the episode, I 
to me, this was... It's a tough... Again, we can't get into the legal stuff of it because you and I are not lawyers. We're not police officers. You know, from what we know, he didn't break the law, right? So we're talking about, as a coach, as a university, what can and should be done. And I think first and foremost, right, as a university, you have a brand to protect, right? You have a, a lot more students than just just him going to your campus, right? They all have a degree that at some point they hope has some weight, has some value. Um, and, and when you let something like that happen and you let it just go completely unchecked, what does that say to every other student on campus who doesn't play basketball? What does that say to women on campus who are walking home late at night who are worried that, you know, basketball players can act without impunity? You know, to me, you kind of think back to... Baylor, right? You know, where obviously, again, different scenario, but at the same time, there was a lack of accountability held to the, it wasn't just football, right? It was, it was basketball as well. There was a murder on the basketball team. And so, you know, there was a lack of accountability all around in that athletic department where eventually that leaks out into the student body of either A, they don't feel comfortable or B, that they know that they don't hold people accountable at this school or they only hold certain people accountable at this school. And then you're going to start losing prospective students and it goes into that whole thing. So that's, to me, that's a big part of it is you've got to have that. But number two, it's, if you look at just the individual and I said, it's a teachable moment, you know, he necessarily didn't do anything quote unquote wrong. He did something stupid. He did something that uh, he shouldn't have done. But he didn't do anything illegal, and so it's an opportunity for that coach to sit him down, to get some better people around him, to talk about decision-making, to talk about critical thinking, to talk about, hey, you're going to be a top-five pick in the NBA. You can't be playing with guns, period. You know, your your hand should never be on a gun unless you're, I don't know, duck hunting or casually at a shooting range, right? But there's no environment when you're you that your hand should be on a firearm, period, in my mind. You know, there are some guys, you know, in the NFL they do a, you know, a kind of a rookie symposium, right, where where Michael Irvin comes in, he talks about you got to have a fall guy. you got to have somebody who's willing to take that bullet for you. I, I'll take it a, a step further. you got to have somebody with you, if you're going to have an entourage, who says, hey, man, this is stupid. Don't go do this. That's what you need to have, not the fall guy. You need, you need E from Entourage, who's your, who's sitting there telling you this is a dumb idea. Hey, this is cool. This is a good idea. Whatever it is, you need people around you if you're going to be at that level of celebrity, that level of talent, that level of star, who help put you in positive situations as often as physically possible. And so, to me, that Alabama coach. You, you sit him down. You say, "Hey, you're gonna you're gonna miss five games during that process. Here's what you're gonna do. I want to help you put a plan together that when you go to the NBA, because he's still gonna go, Scott. You and I both know that at the end of the day, he's still gonna go, and he's still probably gonna be a top ten pick, and he's gonna make twenty million dollars next year. So, are we gonna prepare that man to handle that bag and show up to work every day and and be the best player he can be?" Or are we going to give a, a, a 22, 23-year-old kid $20, $20 million and say, hey, see you Monday, practice starts at 8? Well, 
And the fact that I remember this vividly after 35 years uh, is going to say something. But back when I was in seventh grade, I was on track team. And I may not look at or sound it now, but I was pretty damn fast. And one of the things our coach used to do is he used to sit there and say, okay, because we had the last period of the day, he sat there and said, okay, just you're going to run, you're going to distance run. And we went to, I went to Clear Lake Intermediate. Like a lot of schools, Clear Lake Intermediate was right next to a neighborhood. And so he said, okay, you're going to run around the neighborhood. It was binding my neighborhood. I, I, I live in the old Oak Brook West. Well, so did one of my teammates. <laughs> so you know what we did? We ran to his house, and we just sat there, and we hung out. And, you know, did whatever. Kind of just sat around there for about 10 or 15 minutes. Walked back to campus. And I don't know how he found out, but Coach found out. And so he did, as, as a, one of the workouts, he just sat there and said, okay, I know this happened. If this was one of you, you know, raise your hand now. So like the dumb 13, 14-year-old kid I was, I raised my hand. He says, all right, you're not running at the next track meet. I, you know, I don't think I was this fastest guy, but I was... I was pretty damn fast. Uh, I was, I ran a pretty mean 400 in my day. Not that track meet I did. And so I didn't get to go. And I remember coming to him to complain to him afterwards. I says, there were other people there with me. And he says, I know. He says, I'll get them. Don't worry. And eventually he did. Now, the fact that I'm telling this story, the fact that I remember this story 35 years later. It's pretty damn important because what it says is, is that I did something stupid, not nearly as stupid as Brandon Miller, but you know, on a seventh grade scale, I mean, what kind of trouble are you going to get into in Clear Lake, right? And I had to pay immediate consequences for it. I learned. And so every other practice, I ran my butt off, tried as hard as I could, and you know, I got better in track. But the problem is, and I, I, as a teacher, I could sit there and tell you this. I've had principals come up to me. You can't fail this kid. He's a good football player. We need him out there. It's like, and, and this was in a junior high. This was a seventh grade football player. Yeah, he's good at football. We need, what the hell are we doing? And, and it happens in high schools all the time. Like, you know, you probably remember, you know, kids at Lake who were great athletes who got away with stuff. I knew people at Clear Lake when I was there, great athletes who got away with stuff. Uh, remember, there was a quarterback one year, I think, in between when we graduated, got caught with pot in his locker. That wasn't the problem. He was playing quarterback on Friday night. So what are we teaching? You know, as coaches, as teachers, as adults, as parents, what are we teaching our kids? And I wonder, too, if the landscape of college sports has made that a little bit tougher, where, number one, most of the kids, especially basketball, right, you're not really getting recruited off what you did in high school as much as your AAU tape, right, where you go out and you play 25 games and you're 
all the best talent in the country is at the same gym, and it, it makes college scouting easier. So then on top of that, you're getting NIL money when you get there. So you're already, you know, a 19-year-old kid's now got some fame, got some anonymity. I'm sorry, he, he has some, just some fame and fortune. He's lost that little bit of anonymity that he would have had if he was just a high school player who was known locally, right? We don't really have that anymore. These kids are scouted because of AAU. Everybody knows who the best college freshman coming in. This kid's been talked about. He's been on people's mind. He was somewhere else. He transferred to Alabama. Um, he's, you know, he's a well-known player, and he's – and he's in the spotlight, and I wonder if, you know, if if that's not the case, right? If if he's not in the spotlight, if he's not having to make, and it's not just him, right? It's other athletes too, because when you're going and playing, and you're getting pumped up, and you're being told how great you are all weekend at this tournament, how's that attitude going to be when you're back in school on Monday? When you got people lining up saying, not only are you going to get your college scholarship, I'm got I got Joe over it whatever Chevy's going to pay you a hundred grand a year to, to sign autographs on the dealership five times. And then you're supposed to go back to senior English on Monday and you're supposed to just blend right back in. I, I don't know. You know, I wonder if, if that is making these kids a little bit more uncoachable, a little bit more, you know, entitled going into what should be the time where they're being molded into being pros, you know, are they being told they're, uh, you know, where, that's kind of where my head is at in that scenario, Scott. Yeah, and I'll tell you a quick story along those lines because I'm not going to give any names. Uh, my daughter played club volleyball, and let me and it makes perfect sense. You know, AAU is kind of the same basic; it's the same basic structure, except in club volleyball, you're paying to play. You know, you're you're joining a club, you're paying. Uh, in our case, it was like it's almost twenty five hundred bucks. You know, this is quite a bit of money. If you're a college coach, do I want to show up to a high school match where if I'm a high school, if I'm a college volleyball coach, I might see two or three kids who might be good enough to play college at one high school volleyball match. Or do I show up to the club tournament that has a hundred teams and maybe two or three hundred players? You know, that could be college volleyball players. I mean, what's worth my time? Well, my, so my daughter quit playing this year because, um, I mean, she's she's more artistic. She's, she's in choir. Uh, she's very talented in that. And there was a kid on her club team who actually a couple of tournaments just flat out quit. So I'm going home, gone. I mean, and she's, you know, throwing fits at practice. She's doing all this stuff. Now, they don't have a mechanism for kicking her off a team because she's paying 20, her dad's paying 2500 bucks just like we are. So they're trying to figure out, okay, do we hold her out of matches? What, what do we do? See, in a high school, in a school setting, I'll, I'll just kick your butt off the team. It's as easy as that. But in an AAU setting or in a club, you know, sports setting, and there's club baseball, you know, there's, you know, certainly spring football. There's, uh, there's all kinds of, you know, club sports, club soccer, where it's the same basic structure. And the thing is, if I'm paying you, you're going to play my kid. 
whether my kid's a turd or not. And if that's where the college coaches are and they see you playing well, and and that's the problem is that, you know, my sister's, you know, up until this year, she's been a varsity volleyball coach. How often does a college coach go up to her and ask her about a kid? Never. That would be the person I want to talk to. Hey, is this a good kid? They don't get asked. Go to the club coach. And I think we're at the point, too, where they don't want to know if they're a good kid or not, right? They just want to know are they talented. Because if they know they get into trouble, that's some liability down the line. But if you go to the AAU coach and you just see the talent, you know, it's, I'm just trying to win. I'm trying to get the best players possible. You know, there's been – there's a lot of college teams out there that go after guys who need that second chance, right? Had to go to JUCO, had to – you know, that's how – that's how Cam Newton had his opportunity with Auburn, right? He got himself in some trouble, had to find somewhere else to go. He had to find someone willing to overlook those those issues. You know, Randy Moss was not supposed to go to Marshall. You know, Randy Moss got in trouble and then had to go to Marshall because he needed someone willing to overlook the off-the-field issues. There are some teams specifically who don't – I don't want to say don't care – they're willing to trade off the level of talent for maybe some questionable character issues on the side. And I, I don't think it's the way to do it, but, you know, it's it's sadly with the amount of money that's at you know up for grabs, especially in college sports too, the bonuses you get for making college for making the tournament, for advancing the Sweet Sixteen, for winning your for winning your conference, for winning your conference tournament. These are you know, this is big money for these coaches and for these programs. And so with the amount of money that's up for grabs, sometimes these players, you know, there's not the full vetting process of, you know, what's he like off the court, what's he like off the field. All they care about is this guy's a stud and he can put twenty five up and he locks down on D. And that's that's the society, that's the culture that we've built. And it, you know, AAU, you you're, you don't ever get to be coachable or whatever these pay for play leagues are. I think football realistically is the only one where you gotta you gotta prove it in high school. You know, every one of the every other sport, I, I feel like in today's environment, you could never touch a high school basketball court, and you could still probably get a scholarship if you just balled out in AAU constantly. And soccer, same thing. Baseball. Maybe not, but I do feel like if you play enough club travel ball and you go to the right tournaments, you, you probably don't have to play college baseball. I mean, high school baseball to get that college scholarship. Uh, golf. Not every school can afford a golf program, but you can go play the elite AJGA, Texas Junior Golf Tour. You know, you can play the amateur events. There are enough stuff on the side for you to never touch the high school golf team and still get yourself a college golf scholarship. So without ever having to be truly coachable, you can get a college scholarship, and I think that is 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 what's making this scenario, specifically with with Alabama, um, tougher. Is we don't know what kind of kid this was, but at the end of the day, we've created an environment where, to me, it used to be the best ability you could have was to be coachable, to learn on the court, to be a good teammate. We we've kind of washed that away for some of these kids where. Your exposure is more important than learning to play the game the right way and being a part of, of your team and helping your team grow and get better. Yeah, and I think college basketball is a lot more of a cute situation because the way, you know, 
a couple of ways this, you know, the sport is set up. I think, you know, for football, you have to stay at least three years uh, before you're able to be drafted. Uh, baseball. Three. It's, you got to be out of, you got to be out of high school three years. You can be yeah, either a red shirt, a sophomore or, right. Or uh, yeah. So three years, uh, baseball, you could be drafted out of Juco or, you know, you basically you could go high out. school, you can go Juco or after your junior year or right. senior year. So basketball could be what it done. So, you know, let's, let, let's look at Brandon Miller here for a second. Let's assume that nothing, you know, happened with that situation. Brandon Miller's going pro after this year. He'd be a fool not to. Uh, and as you said, 25 a game, locks it down. He's a top five overall pick. Now, what Alabama's looking at right now is they're the number two team in the country. So they keep sailing through the SEC, uh, win the SEC regular season. They win the SEC tournament. They're number one seed. Guaranteed. And you know, let's say they go, you know, Sweet 16, Elite 8, maybe Final Four, right? You're going to look up and, yeah, Brandon Miller's gone, but that program could turn around and say, look at us. We were in the Final Four this last year. We were there in the Elite Eight. And they could get elite athletes going their way. But if they sat there with Brandon Miller now and said, in January, oh, sorry, kid, you can't play. They're and probably, I think you're – go ahead, I'm sorry. They're going in the tank in February uh, for probably most of January. Uh, they, you know, they might make the tournament, might be a lower seed. You know, maybe they get bounced in the first or second round. And everybody's going to look at Alabama as that, you know, as, you know, great football school, but basketball – yeah, you're not Kentucky. You're, you're you're not that good. You're not Kansas. You're not even even U of H. You know, you're 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 just you're okay. I mean, it's, that's the difference. I mean, and one player makes all that difference. So basketball is kind of like the perfect storm, where the way it's set up just invites you to do this kind of stuff. And I think the the point you mentioned there that's that's really important too that. I think I want to expand on a little bit is the damage that the one and done is doing to the team environment, right? Where a majority, I think, of the best college basketball teams, they have to reload every single year. Your best player is there for one year, he goes off, and then he goes to the NBA. So because of that, you've got to find a way to retool, and you can't necessarily worry as much about the other qualities that go along with being coachable, being a good teammate, you got to go find studs, period, because you just lost the best player that your program has ever had. And he's only there for one year. And you mentioned, you know, the University of Houston, that's that's where I went to school. That's the other way to do it, right? Where UH maybe is going to have one guy that won and done in the last four years, and that's Jairus Walker, and he was like the number three recruit in the entire country. But other than that, even guys like you know, Marcus Sasser was a guy that everybody thought was gone last year. He was a projected late first-round pick, and he loves the culture and the team. He wanted to come back and finish and get his degree and play all four years. That's what happens when you build a team where guys want to fight for each other and they want to be there for, for the younger guys to continue to help them grow and, and you know let's win a championship together versus when you get a bunch of one-and-dones, and everybody knows they're going to be one-and-done when they get there. They're – 
worried about their brand, right? Because they know that they have to protect their brand to make sure when they go into the NBA, they're going to be a high draft pick and they're going to get paid. They're not there to worry about playing team defense, helping out on. They're worried about making sure that they put good tape out there and they're worried about making sure that they're going to get paid. And so the one and done aspect, not only are we not doing the scouting we need to do on people all around because you're having to replace talent so quickly, then on top of it, you can't instill your team chemistry or you can't build character or you can't build camaraderie in that locker room over a three, four year period because guys are leaving so quickly. There's such high levels of turnover. So you can't instill your discipline into this team. Right. And it is so many of those one and done guys. It doesn't guarantee you anything. Um, and that's why I do like the way Kelvin Sampson is building that program. I mean, I like the fact that he's getting a bunch of good players and not relying on one or two great ones. I mean, yeah, probably the best college basketball player that, you know, probably anybody has seen in the last 20 years, uh, because LeBron James and Kobe Bryant didn't play in college, you know, they were allowed to come right out of high school. Kevin Durant, University of Texas. I mean, this guy's seven foot, skilled. He could probably play any position on a basketball court. Goes to the University of Texas one year, and I don't even think they made it to the Final Four. No, they got to the Elite Eight. I mean, that's it. And so, you know, you look at, you know, and you never know with these guys. Like the best, you know, recent player, you know, at least in terms of of hype, Zion, you know, Williamson is now uh, – uh, playing for Lazy Boy, I mean the the New Orleans. Uh, excuse me. Um, he I say Lazy Boy because he he's he plays maybe twenty games a year because he can't stay healthy. But you know Duke wasn't able, you know, to ultimately win the you know the final game. It, it's it just it doesn't guarantee you anything. Having the best player on the planet doesn't guarantee you anything. I mean, look how many times Coach Calipari got the best recruit in the country, right? Where everyone was, especially his first few years at Kentucky, where he had like Anthony Davis, uh, he had uh, Booker. I mean, every year he had the top guy. And they've got what, one one title in his entire time at the University of Kentucky? Uh, you know, when you are just getting guys every single year, it's, it's not the way to win. I mean, it, it's... I feel like you see it here. Gonzaga's there every single year, right? Why? Because Gonzaga's got a program. They built a program. Guys don't leave after one year. They know that if they stay for four years, they're going to get better, and they're going to have several cracks at a national championship. Same for Duke. Same for UNC. I mean, you're going to have your peripheral guys who leave after one and done like like uh, Zion, but for the most part, if you go to Duke, you're going to stay for at least two or three years. If you go to Michigan State, you're not leaving after one year. You're going to work with Izzo for at least two, three years. The Blue Blood programs, for the most part, don't have to replace their top score every single year. And again, when you do that, you've got to overlook a lot of things because your program has, you know, if you're Kentucky, you've got a level of success, right? And if every single year the best player on your team is gone, at some point, you're going to run out of of church-going 25-point-a-game scores, right? At some point, you're going to have to say, ah, you know, this guy's, this guy's got some history, but I really, I really need a power forward. 
really need somebody who can go bang down low. And I'm willing to overlook the fact that, he, you know, he he robbed gas stations when he was 15 years. You know, whatever it is, right? I'm just throwing that out there. But that's the that's the environment we've created with a one and done. You know, there was nothing wrong with guys going straight to the NBA out of high school. The only problem was owners got tired of wasting money on draft picks that didn't work out. So they wanted, you know, one more year to look at these guys against a different body of work. It's it's rich people trying to protect their money. And in doing so, they've really weakened the game of college basketball. And they've I think they've opened up college basketball to some liabilities that wouldn't have been there without the one and done. It is also the amateur sports angle because really there's no – there's no real reason why. I mean, now you have the NBA DL, you have the developmental league, but you know, before then you had the reason why they got rid of it was because you had, you know, 60 or 70 kids, you know, thinking I'm going to get drafted. It's like, you're counting up teams and you're counting up two rounds in every draft. Well, not everybody's going to get picked. And the problem was, is that once you declare for the draft, you're no longer have amateur status. So you have all these kids who think I'm going to be the next LeBron when maybe if they'd gone to college and developed their game, maybe they would have been a first round pick, maybe, but we see it happen all the time with professional baseball. Uh, Russell Wilson played, you know, pro baseball, you know, before he became a quarterback and, you know, ended up going to the NFL. Uh, you have these other guys, uh, uh, Stetson Bennett, I feel, is another Brand, guy. Brandon Whedon, Brandon Whedon did a full minor league career before he went back to be yeah. a college quarterback. You know, Stetson Bennett's like John Elway. Yeah, 25, 26 years old. And what do we do? We allow them to go back into college football because no harm, no foul. He's playing pro baseball. He's, it's not like he's getting any better at football uh, swinging a bat. It is the same thing with these kids who declared for the draft out of high school. If you don't get drafted, you're not getting paid. Let them go to college. Let them go play. I mean, what's it going to hurt? And so I think, you know, when you have these obvious guys, like your Zion Williamson's, your, your Kevin Durant's, when you're seven foot in high school and you've got handle, there's, I mean, come on. We know you're going to be a great pro at some point. I think there should be some variation of the G League where I think, in my opinion, you've got to split the G League in two. Right, you've got to have the the minor league option where it's the farm team for guys, but then also there should be a legit just developmental league. You go make forty grand, you can sign endorsements, games are on TV, NBA. You know you can train refs the same way, right? Let these guys. If you want to be a ref in the NBA, here's a league you can go work on and get better, and leave the colleges alone. If you're gonna go there for one year. You can go there for one year. You can even, hey, if you want to sign a waiver saying I'm not going to get paid so you can keep your college eligible, you go for one year, realize I'm overmatched, let me go back to college. But either way, you got to you gotta find some way that these one-and-dones have to stop. It, it really it, – it's putting these universities in a, in a scenario where you're just too desperate for talent and you're willing to overlook a lot of things. And – it's, it's just not good for – really, it's not good for the other students on that campus because you're bringing in some people into an environment, part of a student body, and eventually that culture gets out of control. And we've seen it. 
We saw it on, on, on the campus with Baylor, what happens when when that continuously just goes unchecked and that culture isn't there and there's no discipline, there's no accountability, and then the rest of your student body is at danger. And again, these are these are worst case scenarios that we're talking about, but it all starts and it stems from a lack of instilled team culture and, and instilled team discipline. And to me, Alabama, their football their football program has as much culture and discipline as you can ask for, right? And when you talk about college football, there you're going to Alabama, you're gonna you're gonna hit a regiment. There's gonna be X, Y, your day is planned out. It should be the same way for all your sports, right? You should have that level of excellence across the board. And I, I get that not every sport is created equal, but you know, you should have a a desire to uphold the name of Alabama. You know, kids should want to go to college there, and, it, and they shouldn't be worried about who's on the basketball team. Right, right. And uh, it just reminded me of, you know, you are talking about refs, you know, kind of working their way up. My my dad was a ref, and he, he refed like elite high school. Uh, he refed in both the women's and the men's Southwest Conference. And when I was a kid, he, he used to ref like those NBA summer leagues, you know, just to pick up games around Houston. And I used to remember watching Akeem Olajuwon back when he was, you know, just, you know, learning how to play, you know, Moses Malone. And I remember, yeah, you probably know the history of Five Slam at Jam. Um, yeah, absolutely. I, I, you know, I watched them, you know, live, you know, that, 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 that final to NC State was just a you know a back burner. But one of the guys from that team, Michael Young, uh, he did not play really at all the NBA. Uh, but I remember watching him in a summer league game. He's dropping like 28, 35 points wearing cargo shorts. And I was like, what the hell? You know, and, and there's just so many opportunities. And there's so many of these guys who – Let's face it, they're not students. I mean, they, they may have pulled a 2.0 in high school. They're not ready for the NBA. And, but they could be someday, you know, with the right kind of coaching, with the right kind of development. I mean, the NBA is finally getting it together, but for so many years, they just they didn't. There's so many opportunities. I mean, they used to have the CBA. I mean, I think the the Rockets got like half their guys from the Yakima Sun Kings, you know, at, at one point. Well, think about like, what if the NBA went with the like Premier League model and uh, Premier League soccer model where they have like the academy team, right? Like what if you had legitimately a Rockets academy team, which was 18 to 20 year olds of guys that you're talking about, right? They may not necessarily want to go to college to get that degree, but they want to further themselves in basketball. I, I, that's, you know, obviously it would cost Tillman money. And based on our conversation of scumbag of the week last week, we know Tillman doesn't like to spend money, but that being said, that's a solution, right? Where you can develop team, you can develop talent. It's probably cheaper to do it that way than to continually sign big name free agents than to the money it costs to tank in the draft to try and go get the number one player. So that way you could be good again in three years. I mean, if you look at what the Astros did, they did a majority of rebuilding their franchise through good draft picks, having a strong minor league development program, teaching those guys how to win in the minor league so that when they got to the major leagues, they expected 
uh, a certain level of winning. And we talked about last week, you can't do that in the NBA when you're tanking. So at least if you have this developmental team or some sort of minor league, legitimate minor league team that wasn't, you know, the G League where you, you either got drafted or signed as a free agent after college, this was an opportunity for kids to test themselves against the best at their age. If it doesn't work, great. I can go to college. I can play college basketball still. I didn't lose my eligibility. All I did was play for the club, the Rockets club team, their developmental team. That To me, that's the solution uh, on something like this, but it, it takes a lot of money <laughs> to get something like that started, and it takes you know, a minimum of at least 17 owners saying yes on a vote, right? And I don't even think if it was 17-15, they would get something like that done. You've got to have a large majority of the owners who are willing to say, yes, this is the way I'd like to go. Uh, I don't know what it would take to convince them of that, but I, I think that your talent level across the board would go up in the NBA because these guys are just across the board. Everybody's better than they were 20 years ago as far as natural skill sets, right? I think guys are better ball handlers now than they were in the 70s. They're better shooters than they were now. They're more explosive. They're more athletic. They're, the training has gotten be- better. I mean, I, I think a guy that is a, is a bench warmer in today's NBA could be a productive role player in the 70s based on, you know, if you're a good three-point shooter and a good rebounder, but everybody can do that nowadays, right? Versus back then, you had a couple guys who could sharpshoot, but three-point shooting wasn't what it is nowadays. And so there's so many quality, skilled players out there that will never get that run. It would be interesting if you had that kind of developmental league for guys 18 to 20 to get better, to get coached up properly, to learn how to be a pro, and, and then test the water that way. And I think, you know, what's interesting is when you set this up against the backdrop of the debate in baseball that we've had over the last couple of years about the, the pay that minor leaguers get. Uh, because basically when you look at it, the major league team is in charge of paying the players. Everything else is run by the, the owners of the franchises. I mean, the Ryans owned Corpus Christi and Round Rock, for instance. And those were very, very successful you know, franchises for them. You know, they're making money. And you know, when you sit there and look at it, if there's 25 guys a team, and you sit there and say you have A-ball, double-A, triple-A, maybe you have like a rookie team, save 100 minor league players. You pay them all a hundred grand. That's what, ten million dollars? I mean, that's nothing to these guys. And and to sit there, you know, maybe the start in the NBA is you can't maybe have every team able to do it, but maybe you could sit there and say, you know what, San Antonio, Dallas, just even an eight. We're gonna do an eight-team developmental league. We're gonna yeah. do something like that. A, we're gonna have a Texas team. Spurs, you got you find five guys you want to develop. Mavericks, you find five guys you want to develop. Rockets, you find five guys you want to develop. There's a 15 man team. Boom. There you go. And then, you know, whoever, whatever city it runs out of. I don't know. Lubbock. Who knows? Livingston. You know, Nacogdoches. I, I, who cares? That city is going to reap whatever, you know, they're going to run the actual day to day. You're just paying the players. That's all you're doing, paying the coaches. And there's some good examples of this, too. Even there's a there's an independent baseball league that operates in Michigan. It's a summer summertime only. It's a real short season league because it's Michigan weather. But it's a four-team league that operates out of one stadium. 
and low cost of overhead. Players don't make a ton of money. But there's one place. If you want to come scout guys, we got a place for them to play. And basketball is such a game that you only need each game, what, like, if you don't have TV timeouts and all that other stuff, you can get it done in an hour and 20 minutes. You can put those broadcasts on the internet. You can, it, there's money to be made there and you could run three games a day without a question. You know, the, they have that big three league that travels around in the, the summertime for former NBA players and stuff like that. When they come to town, they play all the games starting from one o'clock to whatever. They're all played in that city all in one day. So you can even do it traveling like that, where you know every town's going to get a chance to host this, host this tournament once a month or whatever it may be. But there's opportunity there. There definitely is, and um, I think you know we're just pitching hypotheticals here. But it would be interesting to see that be the place to develop guys instead of college basketball because it just it just waters down the sport and it just takes away from the ability to build a team it really does but scott let's kind of transition now a little bit um from guys who are wanting to develop to you know some guys who maybe uh were highly thought after prospects who didn't quite develop or maybe they developed to their ceiling and it's just not quite good enough to be a starter i want to talk now about some of our favorite backup quarterbacks because you know it got me thinking chad henney retired and first of all, I forgot Chad Henney was still in the league. But second of all, you know, Chad Henney's been a backup for the Dolphins. He's been a backup for um, the Chiefs for such a long time. But is he a good one, right? Do we know if he was a good backup? And, and I think sometimes the question with a backup quarterback is, what is a good backup? Is it a guy who holds the clipboard well? Is he a guy you can count on for a spot start? Is it a, a former starter hoping for, you know, a return to glory? You know, when we look at a backup quarterback, what are you looking for? Uh, me, personally, I'm looking for a guy that if he had to start a game, I'm not, you know, crapping my pants going, oh, crap, you know, this isn't going to work. Um, and that's where, uh, you know, and I thought of this discussion for, there's, you know, five or six names that are available right now. Because if we're, if we're looking at the Texans and you're saying we don't want Davis Mills to ever start a game unless it's another, other, you know, disaster, the Texans are going to have to sign a guy. Even if they draft a quarterback in the, in the second overall pick, they have to sign another guy. And so that's what I was thinking of. But, you know, when you're when you thinking back to when I was a kid, um, I, I grew up uh, – Started watching Oilers football in the early 1980s. This is when they were absolutely terrible. Terrible. And so you had guys on that team. You had uh, Archie Manning for one year. You had Kenny Stabler. You had Gifford Nielsen, who ended up being on CBS. Uh, my favorite story of Gifford Nielsen was Bob Phillips used to say that uh, he used to bring out Gifford Nielsen when he wanted to give his uh, punt returner uh, some work because you know Gifford Nielsen would throw that nice end over end throw instead of a spiral. Uh, but my favorite guy growing up was Oliver Luck. Poor Oliver Luck, uh, Andrew's dad. Poor Oliver Luck. You know he he looked like you know he was athletic guy, but 
he always seemed to trip over the 20 yard line. I don't know. I don't know why it just, I mean, uh, and he seemed to epitomize those teams and he was just a guy that, you know, you worked his butt off, just didn't quite have the talent. And uh, so he's one of the guys I remember from my youth that was, was a favorite of mine. For me, it's, it's tough because I think there are, I think there's two distinct different types of, of backup quarterbacks, right? I think they're, well, at least the ones that we remember. I think you've got the, call them like the Nick Foles type, where your guy goes down and the backup goes on an unbelievable run, and then people think this guy can be a starter, and then everybody realized he was just a backup who won an unbelievable run, right? You've got the Nick Foleses of the world. You've got uh, the Doug Johnsons, the Trent Dilfers, um, things like that. Then I think you've got the other type of backup who's just this guy has known from day one that he is an NFL backup. And I don't know if you've ever seen the show Blue Mountain State, but there's a character, uh, Alex Moran, who like he loves being the backup quarterback. He doesn't have to do anything. He still picks up all the girls on college campus. He literally does not ever have to go into play. And so to me, that's like the, I don't know if you remember, the Charlie Whitehurst, the old yeah. uh, backup for the Chargers. Charlie Whitehurst only played in week 17 in the, in, in the preseason because Phillip Rivers was going to go out there with broken ribs or not. You weren't going to get Charlie Whitehurst onto the field. And so it, it's, it's to me, that's the two different types of backup quarterbacks where, um, and I think guys fall into that camp, the ones that we remember, you know, I, and I think with backups, a lot of times they get remembered for crazy situations like the old Sage Rosenfeld's, you know, copter scenario. But, you know, when I think back of great backups, right, you've got, you've got guys like Frank Reich who had his one, he had his moments where he led literally both the biggest in college and NFL comeback uh, in a game in history, unfortunately, at the expense of the Oilers. You know, you've got, you know, even a guy like Kurt Warner who was supposed to back up Trent Green, uh, Trent Green gets hurt in the preseason, and now, again, a, a guy gets hot and, and goes on a run. Um, and, and to me, those are the backups that I think about. But then, you've again, you've got those other guys who, what about, like, the the David Cars of the world, where, you know, number one pick, didn't live up to the hype. He went on to win two Super Bowl rings, backing up Eli Manning, holding the clipboard. So it's, you know, there's a lot of different great backups out there and i think now we can you know let's get a chance to run through some of our favorites and and some of those big moments that they had so i'm gonna give i'm gonna give you one that i think marries actually because he's available now um case keenum university of houston threw for about you know i love me some case four hundred thousand yards at u of h or something like you know something ridiculous like that you know because he played there for like seven years or something um it was seven it it was a red shirt then two medical red shirts and four years on the field i mean it was crazy right and so unfortunately i'm watching uh the one case keenum moment that i think everybody knows is i'm watching and I'm rooting for the Saints because my wife is rooting for the Saints. And they're playing the Minnesota Vikings. And you're thinking, this game's over. And all of a sudden, he throws that pass down the rail right sideline. And, you know, the, the Saints DB goes for the interception, misses. K 
catch run in for the touchdown. You're just like, oh God. And and and, and you mentioned a couple of other guys, and and he was a perfect example. So what immediately happens after that season? It's a magical season. Somebody gives him a whole big suitcase of money, and he turns back into a backup quarterback. But I think everybody he's available. He's available now, and he's a guy that I think you know if you put him into a game. I would feel confident that if the other players you know do their part, we're going to win the game. He's not going to lose the game for you. He may not have the the chops to win the game, but he's definitely not going to lose it. And that's what I think a great backup quarterback was. You know, you mentioned some fictional characters, but I think the guy I always remember is the backup quarterback from the program. He's sitting there dating the coach's daughter. And, you know, sitting there, I don't care because I'm never going to play. Then all of a sudden, in the middle of the year, he has to, and, and the coach has to bail him out for cheating on a, t- on a test. I mean, it was just uh, – but, yeah, I, give me a guy who you can put him in, and he's not going to lose the game. Uh, and Case Keenum, to me, was that guy. I love the Keenum pick. I, I think he is – exactly the definition of a backup quarterback, right? I think if you need a three-game stretch in the middle of your season, Case Keenum's a great candidate for that. If you need all 16 games, Case Keenum's going to get exposed. And and I think that's that's the mark of any good backup, right? They can come in and be effective for a period of time, uh, but they just don't have the ability to change the game plan or do more than what they're they're, they're capable of X, Y, and Z. And that's if you get the most out of them, it's going to be X, Y, and Z. There's nothing else you're going to get out of them versus the guys like Mahomes, Hurts, Josh Allen. They they raise their game to a certain level that you ne- sometimes you don't even know what you're going to get out of those guys because it's better than you could have expected. So, you know, when you look back on, on some of my, my favorites, I a guy like Charlie Batch always stuck out to me. You know, Big Ben took a ton of hits. And you know there were going to be some times where you just needed one or two games throughout the season to to hold the ship steady while while Ben <laughs> healed up a little bit. And and Charlie Batch was a guy who he just had confidence. You know, you just knew this guy was a seasoned professional. He was going to go out there. He wasn't going to turn the ball over a ton. He was going to let the Steelers' defense and running game do what they needed to do. And he was going to give the team a. He wasn't going to cost the team a chance to win. Uh, and to me, that's what you're looking for in a great backup. Was so, you know, there's so many teams that the backup is competing for that starting job, right? Where going into camp, you've got two guys, you don't know who the starter is, and then you know, next thing you know, you just have two backup quarterbacks. The, the Texans for years were the perfect example of that when they're competing. Uh, Ryan Mallett against. Um, Brian Hoyer, right? When at the end of the day, like you don't have a starter, you got two backups. Those aren't the guys that you're looking for, right? Because I want someone who knows his role, prepares to do what he needs to do, and that's to to be available when you need me. But at the end of the day, I know what I am, and I'm not good enough to start 16 games in the NFL. And and I think Hoyer is a is a good backup. I would take Brian Hoyer as my backup, but I don't want Brian Hoyer for more than two games. And I think. Those guys who know what they do and they excel at it as a backup quarterback, I, I think are are the ones you want to have because those are the fun guys in the locker room, right? Like to me, the backup quarterback 
is a key part of that NFL team chemistry. If he's a jokester, if he's having a good time, if he knows his place, when you've got a, a, a guy who's pissed off that he didn't get the starting job and he's harboring resentment or whatever it is, it just is not the same kind of locker room where you got all receivers who think this guy should be the guy, receivers who think that guy should be the guy. I, I prefer the team where you know, hey, I am I am only here if, if if my guy breaks his leg. That's the only time I'm getting on the field. Yeah, it, it kind of a, it did what is true. I think also of great backups. Um, so when I was growing up watching the Oilers, you know, later on the Oilers were in the playoffs. So you had Ward Boone. Everybody knew Ward Boone was a starter. Everybody knew, you know, they called him Commander Cody. I always called him Civilian Cody. Cody Carlson uh, was the backup for those few years. The third stringer in the 1980s, the guy named, uh, his last name was Mickey. And lo and behold, about 20 years later, he's my eye doctor. So, I mean, here's a guy, played football, smart enough to be an autometrist. Uh, and unfortunately, he died of a heart attack, you know, some years ago. Uh, but, Think about your great backup quarterbacks that you know. They're all smart guys. Like you, you look at ESPN now. I mean, who is the you know, the big number one analyst? You know, is Dan Orlovsky, former Texan for you know a brief time. You know, former line right out the back of the end zone during their 0-16 season. And so you're looking at the guy, and you're like, man, you're brilliant. But he just didn't have the he didn't have the physical skills to do it. But, you know, he had it all up here. And you're looking at, you know, your backup quarterbacks. And, I, you know, you mentioned Brian Hoyer. Brian Hoyer's a guy, I think, pretty bright guy. Just doesn't have it physically, you know, in order to do it the 16 games of the year. Ryan Mal, you know, if he could ever get an alarm clock that worked, you know, maybe he could have done something. But, um, but you look at the great backup quarterbacks around the league. They're all, all intelligent guys. How about the – how are we forgetting – Ryan Fitzpatrick in this conversation, right? Oh, we'll talk yes. about but the intelligent guy, obviously the first thing you say when he gets to the game, went to Harvard. But I mean, Ryan Fitzpatrick, I can't believe I didn't think of him immediately when you talk about backup quarterbacks. In in the last ten years, I don't think there's one one better backup that if you need somebody to come in and win a game for you, Fitzmagic's about as good as they get. He he Somehow every every team he backs up, the main quarterback gets hurt. I don't know how that keeps happening, but I mean he's a guy who's going to come in and he's going to play a good game for you off the bench. I I I think I need to move him into that top spot because he's got some some great off the bench moments. He even the last game of the season last year, he purposely did nothing all week to prepare. He didn't go to a meeting, didn't throw a ball in practice. Just because he knew there was probably a chance he was going to get called into that game, and he wanted to see if he could come off the street in this year, in case somebody got hurt, to go back into a game. And what do you know? Tua goes down. They call Fitz Magic. He comes in, ends up winning the game in the fourth quarter. And at that point, he knew when a quarterback goes down and they call my cell phone in two years, I'll be fine. I mean, that's that's what I that's what I want in my backup, right? Like you call my number, I'll be ready. He has like there's like. Three things that I think make a great quarterback all, you know, all together. And I think the intelligence is one thing, you know, that obviously he has, you know, the physical traits, he doesn't have so much, but to me, what he has are stones. 
Like he could go out there and he could throw three or four picks. He doesn't care. He's just gonna keep. He's gonna keep slinging it. Yeah, you know, until you know the game is over. I mean, and that's what you need. And that's you need it really in every sport. You know, if you know that key hitter, you want him to sit there. I struck out last time. I don't care. I'm gonna get a knock this time. You want a guy in basketball I missed the last five three pointers. You know what? I'm just gonna take another one. And in football, I threw the key interception. You know what? Give me the ball again. I'll do it. And that's what I think Fitz, uh, Fitzmagic had that, you know, those, you know, some of these other backups didn't necessarily have is he had stones. I mean, he would sit there, he would thread the needle, he would go for broke and, and he just, he didn't care. Uh, he was going to. Just to throw a proverbial curveball at you here, because I do think there is a little bit of um, similarity between that second catcher and the backup quarterback, right? I think most teams in baseball that have their everyday catcher, they've got that other guy who once out of every five days will get behind the dish. Um, you don't expect as much out of him as you do your starter. He's probably either a young guy coming up, but most likely he's an older guy. He's more there to game plan, to help the pitchers get ready. He's a good locker room presence. To me, I, I think back to my favorite was Tony Eusebio who was uh, Shane Reynolds' personal catcher, went once every five days. He literally only caught Shane Reynolds. Um, but it's to me, that's the similarity there is they don't expect a lot out of you. You're probably got one of the best jobs in sports as, as the, the second catcher on a team where you're only catching once out of every five days. And your job there, just like you mentioned, is you're a cerebral guy. You're just like the backup quarterback. You're you're great with X's and O's. You just don't necessarily have the physical traits to translate it onto the field for 16 games. That's the backup catcher, right? Like, he's not a good enough hitter. You can't justify putting him in the lineup. But he's he's great in the locker room, and he's a great game planner. And typically, one specific ace pitcher really likes this guy, and they're willing to go to bat for him uh, like Verlander did with, um, with Machete. And, um, you know, it's... It's, I think that's a fun comparison there. Yeah, I think we talked about this guy uh, kind of in, in a roundabout way uh, in a past episode. Uh, we, we talked about him as Harry Doyle, uh, but he is not Harry Doyle. Yeah, Bob Euchre. He is Hall of Fame announcer Bob Euchre. And, and some of the stories he told, because he was Phil Necro's personal catcher uh, back when he was with Braves. And so... Somebody I remember asked him, it was the best answer I've ever heard. He said, uh, they asked him, how do you catch a knuckleball? He says, so I let the pitch come. I go back to the backstop, pick it up off the back wall, throw it back to the pitcher. <laughs> it's like, yes. I mean, he's the guy. I mean, they're, they're, and, I mean he, he tells great stories. He's like a 200 career hitter. You know, he's, he's absolutely, you know, just not a very good baseball player. But obviously, and if you've, ever listened, gotten a chance to listen to him actually announce a baseball game for real, he, he's a great announcer. Uh, and he, I mean, entertaining, intelligent, you know, the whole nine yards. I mean, the only guy I've ever heard that comes close to him is uh, Mike Flanagan. He used to be a pitcher for uh, the Orioles. He used to talk about the fact, you know, somebody asked him if he was uh, superstitious. He says, no, nah, but 
I'd never seen a pitch well, and they played the national anthem before the game. Uh, he also said, like, you know, it's a he says, you know, it's a bad sign when they're raking the warning track you know, during the seventh inning stretch. <laughs> I mean, stuff like that. Yeah, just but yeah, Bob Euchre is a favorite. You stole uh for Astros one, you stole my you know, Eusebio is definitely uh definitely my favorite. Eusebio was the man. Like again, he he was Shane Reynolds' personal catcher who at the time um, 97, 98, 99, Reynolds mostly was the guy for a period in 98. We had Randy Johnson, right? But for those three years, Reynolds was your opening day guy. He was your best starter. Tony Eusebio brought so little to that team. I don't know. He could hit. Other, he could hit, but he didn't. I mean, he didn't play, but once every five days. We were running Mitch Belusky out there. We were running Brad Osmus out there. We were running everything but Tony Eusebio because he was there. For Shane Reynolds and Shane Reynolds only. Because he yeah. just couldn't bend down. He couldn't catch nine innings more than once a week. Yeah, I mean, I just... And he's a guy... It was the first time I remember hearing this. And, and it's something that I think Jordan has to consider. Is he's the first guy I remember having that hammock bone surgery. Where he broke that hammock bone. He had that hammock bone removed. And that was the first time I'd ever heard of a hammock bone. I was like, no, nah, you're, you're making that up. That, that, that doesn't exist. But, you know, sure enough, he had it removed. He was back in the game, you know, back playing in about a month. That's, I'm sitting there thinking, now it's March 1st. You know, should Jordan maybe consider doing that? You know, because that's what I'm hearing is the issue. And if you know, Do you care if he misses the first two weeks in April? Uh, I don't. But if he could be healthy the rest of the year. So you mentioned, I want to transition one more time. You mentioned Bob Buecher. And I think this is a perfect way to, to segue into this. Bob Buecher, broadcaster for the uh, Brewers. I was listening to, um, it's called the Believe in Astros podcast. But it, one of the hosts of the show is Jeff Blum. And Blum is in... Um, West Palm Beach right now, uh, getting ready for the season. And he's done the first few Astros television broadcasts. And then just for some spring training fun, he hops on a radio broadcast to give Steve Sparks a day at the golf course. And one of the things that he mentioned, which I, I didn't even think about when the rules changes were announced, was how much harder it is this year for the play-by-play announcer and the color announcer to be able to do their job and kind of fill those gaps. And there's just not as much time to not only tell stories, to do what they've been doing for years, you can't even show replays. Like, you don't have time to show a replay of a, of a previous hit or a pitch or anything like that because it's coming in so fast with this 15-second pitch clock. Now, if you look at the game time so far, they're coming in at 208, 210, 215, in that range... I almost feel like we've sped the game up too much at this point. We'll see when the regular season starts, but like to me, two and a half is a sweet spot. Like two and a half, two forty-five, we're golden. I want to enjoy my broadcasters. I want to. I want to enjoy the local channel. And you know, now we're in a scenario where these guys can't do what made them great at their job because the game's just moving so fast. It's turning into an NBA broadcast. Right. Yeah, I was. Uh, I remember. I was thinking about that too. And what I was thinking about also is, you know, could we marry this? Because you think about an NFL game, you think about an NBA game. 
The game's just flowing. And then all of a sudden you get down to the last two minutes. And it just crawls to a standstill. Teams are calling timeouts every other second. Um, and in football, it's the same way. You got the two-minute warning. You got teams, you're running a two-minute drill. And there's lots of drama there. And I was wondering if we could marry this, if we could sit there and maybe sit there and say, hey, maybe after the seventh inning, we suspend the pitch clock. Completely. Or, hey, you get a runner in scoring position, turn off the pitch clock. You know, or you know, something along those lines. Because to me, you, you had a couple of instances where you had, you know, Manny Machado, you know, drew a strike. You had you know, the the Braves, you know, playing in a in a preseason game where the game ends at a tie because uh, they called an automatic strike, where you know the pitch was actually thrown looks like a ball could have been a walk, a bases loaded walk with a winning run, which you don't want. And this is the NFL is the same way. The, the NBA does not want a game lost on a twenty four second shot clock violation. The NFL does not want a game lost on a delay of game penalty. And if you're baseball, you don't want a game lost because of a pitch clock violation. You just don't. And part of what makes baseball so great is we have a chance to savor the moment, right? When when a good broadcast, there's every great call in baseball sets it's set up. You know, runner on first, two outs, three and two count. Here's the pitch to Thompson. Boom, whatever it may be. When it's when you just have rapid firing, strike one. He's got the ball in his mitt. Strike two. You don't have a chance to savor that moment. And and that's always what's made the best baseball broadcasters so good is they draw you in. You're you're anticipating that next pitch with such a need and such a desire that you have to know what happens. You're hanging up. I mean, I've literally sat in my car in a parking lot and been 10 minutes late because we had a big inning going and I had to know how it ended because you just couldn't walk away. And now I'm I'm worried simply because number one this is my craft this is what i spent a lot of time working on and and i appreciate a great broadcast but number two it's is the enjoyment aspect of watching the game at home going to suffer drastically and and that's what really worries me is we talked last week about the importance of the regional broadcast especially in baseball what are we doing if we don't allow the regional guys to share that little bit of insight? I mean, when Todd Callis can only get to like a third of his his game notes because the game's just moving so fast, that's scary. Yeah, I agree, and I, I was thinking about that because you know, I I spend some time listening to uh, you know the baseball channel on uh, on XM, and so you know there's different people have been coming on and been talking about that issue, and really, and, and I. I don't want you know a typical game to last three and a half hours. Most baseball games, you know, the Astros are playing the A's. The Astros are beating them eleven to two. Let's let's get this thing moving. You know, let's go through. But is anybody sitting there in the NLCS, the ALCS, the World Series, or is anybody looking at their watch? Really, crazy part is yes, like. I, I've seen so many comments on on Twitter and social media of how long these World Series games took. And I think the problem there specifically is you and I didn't care how long they took because our team was playing. But on the years the Astros aren't in the World Series, I don't I mean I'll watch the game, but I don't I don't care as much. I I play on my phone more. 
I am up around the house more. Uh, you know, I, I do notice when the game runs longer. And so I do think maybe maybe there's some chance you and I are a little bit biased, especially on some of these playoff games, because the Astros have been featured so heavily, and we don't care that it's taking a little bit longer because it's our team. I, I do think maybe that may hurt the way that we're looking at playoff games specifically a little bit, just because we are. I mean, there's no way to say that we're not biased on those games because we are. Yeah, I think that, uh, yeah, you're, you do have a point there. Uh, and I think, you know, it's definitely, it, it's like any other sport. Uh, I usually don't watch the NBA playoffs. The Rockets haven't been in the NBA playoffs in you know, three years. And, you know, I do watch the NFL playoffs, but, you know, I'm, I'm going up, I'm doing other things. I'm, you know, running errands around the house, you know, doing things, picking things up. You kind of half paying attention. And so, but, but this is kind of the point, though, is that there is a point in the game, whether it's a basketball game, whether it's a, an NFL game, a uh, college football game, where it slows down and you slow down with it because that's when everything's happening. And I think with baseballs, they're going to have to find a way to, to not let those big moments just breeze by. Slow down. Let us savor those moments. You know, if you want to breeze through the first five, six innings, okay, that's fine. But, you know, late in the game, you know, we we want to feel that tension. And you can't feel that tension if the pitch is just, come, you know, coming real quick. No, you're right. And I think what makes it a little bit tougher is, you know, in the NFL, you know what crunch time is. In the NBA, you know when, when crunch time is. In Major League Baseball, you never know when that big moment's going to come, right? It may be in the fifth. It may be in the seventh. It may be in the ninth. And, you know, to me, a lot of time it's, it comes when the bullpen's involved, right? You know, when a starter comes out of the game and then now things get tight in the sixth, seventh, eighth inning and you're going to a different pitcher every inning and things like that. I think that's where it does start to slow. It's going to naturally slow down with trips to the bullpen, but also that's where the game gets tight. That's where you start to stress out a little bit. That's when... You know, a guy who pitches every three out of every four days, you've seen him a lot. You know what he's going to do. I, I think that's that moment, but it's just you can't you can't just say it's certain innings, right? Because what happens when it's seven, eight, nine, and you go one, two, three, and then we're back up to the top of the order the next inning? It, it's just tougher because baseball has – you know, it's just crazy because baseball's never had a clock. My whole life has been no clock. And so I, I don't know. I, we'll, see, we'll see how it plays out, Scott, but I, I don't necessarily know – how to fix it right away. We'll, I, I'm in favor of several of the rules. I don't mind the bigger bases. Seems safer. We've talked before about electronic strike zones. You know, zones to zone. Um, I just, the idea of putting a clock on a baseball game still has a bitter taste in my mouth. Um, but, you know, we were talking about the Astros broadcast, and I, I do want to get to one more thing here um, before we get into our sports scumbags. But, we talked last week about the issue that Bally Sports is having with a lot of its affiliates, how Bally is now bankrupt and, and their affiliates are left scrambling. Well, this week we've seen another development where uh, Warner Brothers, who is the parent company for all the AT&T sports outlets, have basically decided they want to get out of the regional sports business. And they are telling the teams they have till... Uh, Mar uh, March 31st, I believe it is, to take their broadcast rights back and figure out what they're going to do with their broadcast. 
And so I, I think this is an interesting scenario because we're so close to the season. I don't know if they're going to be able to find another legitimate cable channel to be able to get up on that quickly. And so I wonder, Scott, if, if is this finally the moment where Major League Baseball teams are willing to say, give me 30 bucks a month and you can have our games streaming directly to your house. They can still sell their ads in between innings. Nothing, nothing looks different other than you're downloading the Astros app and you're paying 30 bucks a month for it. I think this is the closest we've ever been to that. I'm not sure if that's the way it's going to go, but when you've got less than a month to figure out how everyone can watch your product, I don't see another solution that's going to come together that quickly uh, other than something that involves streaming. So I want everybody to follow me here because this is, you know, uh, with the regional sports networks and the blackout rules, a lot of people are under the mistaken identity because uh, impression that, you know, you go back in time, remember we had the NFL blackout rules and the whole idea was they had to sell out all the tickets by a certain amount of time for the game to be broadcast and the games are always broadcast. I mean, you could look at uh, NRG Stadium last year, and there were, might have been twenty or 30,000 people in the stadium, but it was a well, sellout. Pay, but, pay, paid attendance versus actual attendance right. is always a different thing. Right. But see, the blackouts of baseball and basketball has never been about in-person attendance. It's always been about those regional sports networks. And those regional sports networks had a monopoly in that geographic region. That was the whole idea. Now, Major League Baseball has talked about taking over the Bally's. They haven't really commented on the Warner Brothers yet, but they, they talk about taking over those Bally sites. So if Major League Baseball owns the RSN and I pay Major League Baseball $150 a year for the rights to MLB TV, then should not my Astros be available to me? I mean, in my opinion, yes. But in the opinion of the cable networks, no. But see, it's not the cable networks anymore. See, now if Major League Baseball owns them, then they're the ones who have the rights. They are the ones that get to decide who has the right to watch. And I think that's what that's why I think we're closer to having this option than we ever have been before. Because what murkied the waters was the Warner Brothers, the Bal the Bally's, this Fox Sports coming in and saying, we paid $25 million a year for the rights to this team. We need to be able to recuperate that money. And the way that we do that is by making sure X number of households have this channel. The, net the, uh, the provider pays us, you know, whatever... Out of every 120 bucks a month, we get a buck out of every one of those plans. And people make sure they have cable because they want to watch this channel, right? That's been the, that's been the business model for a long time. Well, now these bigger companies are realizing the $25 million or more for the rights to broadcast are sinking their costs. And so to me, I don't know who else – if Warner Brothers – a giant corporation says no. Who's going to come in at the 11th hour other than Jim Crane himself, who's got the money 
to say, and, and, and what's interesting is the Astros and Rockets tried before to, to start their own channel using their own TV rights. That's what Comcast Sportsnet was. It was the Astros and Rockets having ownership in that channel. So to me, Nat, like knowing that they've already thought about that one time, I, I don't see another way out of this this quickly. There's there's a little bit of precedent for it. Like the I know the Bruins in in Boston have a um, a straight to consumer package for streaming, where you just pay it's thirty bucks a month during the season, and you every game is streamed to your house or your phone or wherever you want to stream it to. So I I, I am interested to see, but now now it seems like about two thirds of the league's teams are without their regional channels or without regional coverage, you know? And at this point, the only teams that are safe are the Fox teams and the ones that own their own channels like the Yankees. And so I, I don't know how Jim Crane could get his own TV channel going quick enough to save 2023. And I, I see it. I mean, I, I just, I don't see another way other than some sort of streaming agreement, whether it be, I mean, even Scott, if I had to pay 150 bucks just for the Astros, like if that was the option, that's fine. Like I, there's enough national games on the other days that if I want to watch that, I can, but the odds are if I'm watching baseball, it's my team. So I, I, I do think at least in 2023, that may be the way they go. I'm excited if it is the way that they go and it should, it should be the way that they go. But everything that we've seen from Rob Manford leads me to believe that that's not the way they're going to go. Right. If he, if, if there's a way for him to screw this up, he'll find it. It's a huge opportunity for the league. It, it, what, what could be something really bad. If the league was smart, it could be huge. You could grow your audience in a way that you've never had an opportunity before. Cause you've had to deal with this cable stuff. But, you know, if you want to talk about having a younger audience, younger people don't have cable. And most of us, I've, I've stuck with Fubo simply to watch the Astros and Rockets. So if you're telling me that we're getting rid of them, well, bye-bye Fubo. I don't need that anymore. I can do with Hulu, Hulu and all that other stuff. I don't need live television for anything but sports. So at that point, I'm going to save money. I'm willing to use the money I'm saving. I'm willing to give you my money. And, and here's the perfect example, Scott. I have a golf membership at one of the local municipal courses up here. And the way their computer system works, if I book a tea, t- if I book a tea time for four people, because I am a member, it says four member tea times. So anytime someone comes to play with me, they go into the pro shop wanting to give the course money. And the course goes, nope, that round's already taken care of. They're turning money away because their computer system sucks. Now here's Major League Baseball turning our money away because their systems suck. It, to me, it's, 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 it's very, very similar. Right. And I, and I think when you look at and this is where baseball's steadily moving this direction, and I hope they don't go the full distance, but... You can think about companies like Blockbuster. I think there's one Blockbuster store somewhere, I want to say like Alaska. It's in Bend, Oregon, isn't it? Yeah, somewhere, right? Why did Blockbuster fail? Now, obviously, the whole idea of a DVD player and a a VHS, that's, that's dead. I have a DVD player. We don't use it. 
you know, because we could stream just about everything. Blockbuster could have survived. They could have survived. But what did they do? Uh, were you a party to that uh, class action lawsuit that they were involved uh, I don't believe so, no. Because, well, what, and, and we didn't even join it, but what happened was they, they sent out a check for a nominal amount of money because what they did was uh, midway through the whole idea, because remember you checked out a, a movie, you had like two or three days, you had to return it. So it used to be that you had to return it by midnight. Well, without telling any customers, they changed it to noon. And so all these customers are incurring all these late fees. And so, because yeah, blockbusters are going, ha, 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 ha. well, if you want to rent a movie, we're the only gig in town. Well, all of a sudden, you know, about 10 years later, nobody rents movies anymore. And so blockbuster, they're out of business. Now, if they had been you know, nice and been customer friendly, maybe they could have been a part of that whole transition. You know, well, and, and I think it's even more akin to Major League Baseball because they had a chance to go into streaming. They had a chance to do everything that Netflix was doing. And they said, people don't want to do that. Right. People want to come to the store and rent a DVD. They want to come to Blockbuster and smell that smell that you only smell in Blockbuster and nowhere else that I still can't figure out what that smell was. But story for another day. Every Blockbuster popcorn, had a smell to it. Popcorn mixed with urine, I think. Something. I mean, but yeah, it, Blockbuster was not a fun experience. Like it, it was fun to go pick out your movie, right? But it wasn't a, an overall fun experience to get there, to see that the movie you want has already been checked out, then to go to the guy and say, hey, can you check the bucket and see if somebody put it back in? Then when it's not there, to say, hey, when is it expected back? Then you show back up on the day that it's expected back, and that person didn't return it yet, and now you still can't watch the movie that you want to watch? No. Hop on Netflix and watch that thing in about ten minutes. It's they 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 crapped the bed by not accepting the technology that was coming, and that is exact. I think you're right on Blockbuster, but it's that's what they're doing with Major League Baseball. They have an opportunity to go along with what most other leagues are doing. You can, I mean, the MLS or or Premier League Soccer is on Amazon. You can watch those games. You can sign up for the Premier League package. You can. Most worldwide sports have no problem with streaming, but because of these territorial cable channels, baseball is behind, basketball as well as behind, it's a big opportunity for baseball, and I I really hope they don't screw it up. I really, really am afraid that they will. Yeah, and I think where baseball's risking joining Blockbuster, kind of the, the, the connection was not only Blockbuster not do it, but they were assholes about it. And so, you know, that's where Manfred is is risking doing this because he, he'll sit there and bloviate, well, we want to have another, you know, just a bunch of words out. It's like, we want to watch our teams on television. Th- th- this is simple. And you you brought up the point. This is, a sim- this is a simple thing. You mentioned it, you know, a couple of episodes ago. You could just do MLB TV right now. So you're saying for 150 you get 28 teams. For $200, you get 30 teams. Or whatever amount that you want to, you know, extra amount that you want to assess to it. And you sit there and say, then you go to Root Sports. Okay, this customer has paid $200. Here's 50 of his 200. There you go. You've been paid. 
Or even, let's go the other way. One team, 150 bucks for the season. All 32 teams, 200 right? I mean, most people are going to go for that 150 option because they really only care about the one game. And at that point, you break off, everybody gets their piece, break it off, and move on. It. I don't know why it seems so complicated. I really don't. Like, you and I, right now, I feel like we figured it out. At the end of the day, you and I, in two seconds, figured out a solution, and they're going to sit there and hem and haw and, you know, I normally got this much, I normally got that much. Well, you're about to get zero. You are about to get a big, fat zero. So... They're haggling over stupid stuff, and it's it's crazy to me they haven't announced it already because I I feel like I feel like this is one of those you know turn lemons to lemonade scenarios. It really is like what could be really bad news if Major League Baseball got their head out of their butts. It could be a banner day for the league if they played it right, and we'll see we'll see what they do. Again, I, this will be the third time I say it now. I don't trust them to do the right way. No, I mean, basically, Major League Baseball right now is where Blockbuster was at the turn of the century. It's the year 2000 for Major League Baseball. In 10 years, cable, satellite, not even going to be a thing. Everybody's, I mean, right now, every, I mean, I don't know anybody that doesn't have high-speed internet in their home. I mean, everybody has high-speed internet. It's rare. It's mostly like rural or um, elderly would be the only ones who don't. I mean, so even if you're even if you're a cable subscriber, even if you're a satellite subscriber, you have high speed internet. You're capable of streaming. You could keep your satellite if you really, really, really love DirecTV. If you really, really, really love Comcast uh, or you know whoever you know, Cox or you know, whoever your provider is, if you want to keep those, hey, be my guest. I mean, it's kind of keeping a landline phone. I mean, you know, go ahead, you know, be my guest, but. You have the capability of streaming. Everybody does. And so if you sat there, I mean, I remember back in the 80s, they sold us, I mean, they figured this out. Uh, just when cable was coming out, they sold us this little silver tube. And you twisted this little silver tube on the back of your TV. And when you did, you got HSE. I don't know if you remember HSE at all. Um, it was called Home Sports Entertainment. We always thought it was Houston Sports Entertainment. That's how we watched our Rockets and our Astros back in the 80s. A little super silver tube. They figured this out. We had cable. We didn't need to buy some highfalutin other side shoot system. We paid a certain amount of money per month to get a little super tube that we you know, twisted on the back of our TV. Boom, we have our Astros. So that was 1986. Come on, folks. I mean, that's more than 30 years ago. What are we doing? I'm with you. It's it's an interesting time. Hopefully, fingers crossed, Scott, you'll be watching the Astros soon. I, You know, no promises, but, uh, you know, I know you've been blacked out here for too long. Let's uh, transition this one over to our favorite segment of the week, our, our so far our only recurring segment is the sports scumbag of the week. If you didn't hear our, our news and political ones, be sure to check those out. We're going to have a recurring segment in the political show of, of Republican tweets of the week. So please be sure to check those out. I'm sure it will be just chef's kiss. Mwah, delicious. But Scott, who do you have uh, this week as your, your sports scumbag? 
I'm going to go with Alabama head basketball coach Nate Oaks. And really, uh, we we talked about the Brandon Miller situation earlier, and and this and you know what, if you want to make your arguments that he should play because he hasn't been charged, okay, you know that's fine. But you know, in his comments, he basically said, "Wrong place, wrong time." That was what this case was. No mention of the fact of well, gee, he brought a gun to the scene. Well, gee, that gun was used. To actually kill a human being, and you know we could get into the legal, and we'll get into the legal stuff with gun control. I know we will do a deep dive into gun control at some point uh, on our show. Uh, but read the room just a little. If you're going to sit there and you're going to let this kid play, read the room. Number one, he shouldn't be playing. But number two sit there and talk about how it's an unfortunate situation, you know, talk about how, you know, we've, we've sent him into counseling or we've, we've had a long conversation with him about what we should be doing. I mean, don't give me wrong place, wrong time. I mean, that's, that's just insulting everybody's intelligence. And, and, and really, you know, you have, yes, you have a team that can make it to the final four. Great. You also have a five-year-old that does not have his mom anymore. So have a little bit of compassion, a little bit of you know self-respect, and just a little bit of uh, just empathy, and, and, and bring that to the table if you're going to let this kid play. Yeah, I, I you're right. It's I, I honestly, I think most of the blame should lay at his shoulders. I think in this scenario, besides the player himself, the the coach is is the most culpable maybe athletic director as well because if you know if you care that much about your organization and your program um and you don't feel like the coach is doing the right thing that's when the administration has to step in so again it's interesting i really feel like you could go after the whole alabama athletic department scott i think that would be really the whole thing because i I, if the coach isn't going to do it then the admin has to step up and say hey man we're missing opportunity here we got to suspend this guy um so I, i do think that's a good one I, on the other hand, uh, I don't know if you saw the Rockets' final score last night. I, 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 I got to put Steven Silas there. I know we talked at length about the Rockets last week and the issues that they're having. They gave up 71 freaking points to Damian Lillard. And then he benched out. They benched Sengun for the second straight game of the third quarter, citing bad defense. Are you freaking kidding me? The whole team played bad defense. He gave up 71 points to one player, a good player. Don't get me wrong. But when you give up 71 points, that's a complete fail defensively. And he's a he's a one guard or a two guard. He's that's not on Sengun. So we're we're ruining the development of a young player. We are hurting the confidence of a young player. We're playing absolute. Zero defense at all. Not even, not even like a hint of defense. I, I, I got to think I could have done more defensively than the Houston Rockets did last night. I at least step in the guy's way, trip, sneeze, cough, anything, give pants him on the way to the basket. Anything would have been better than what the Rockets did. I, I don't understand how a professional NBA team in today's NBA can give up seventy-one points to one player. I mean, I, I watched Harden ball out absolutely ball out. He'd go for like 60, and you're like, oh my god, can't believe that happened. Kobe, 
went for 81. But Kobe was like the biggest ball hog on a team that had absolutely nobody on it. They were just feeding him the ball. Damian Lillard is the point guard. Forced the freaking ball out of his hand. Like, I, I, I don't get it. I really, I don't. What at what point do you just he's hurting the development of this team? You've got to let Steven Silas go. You've gotta you've gotta do it. And for some reason, last night wasn't enough to say, get the hell out of here, man. Because I, I I I can't take this team right now. This is an abomination. I'm someone my favorite Rockets coach growing up was Jeff Van Gundy because they played defense. Rockets won games like 92-88. Uh, as fun as the Harden era was, we didn't win anything. We did nothing of note because we didn't play any defense. And now here we are again playing even worse levels of defense than Mike D'Antoni ever brought to the city of Houston, giving up 71 points to one player. I, I Scumbag of the week, Steven Silas's defensive planning. Tib, 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 tib. They held them to only 133 points. I mean, come on. I mean, they, they were giving up 140, 150 a couple of weeks ago. I mean, this, this is defensive improvement. I mean, you get, you got to take a little bit. Okay. Uh, I'm sorry. I can't, I can't do that for, for that long. This is, you mentioned Alabama's athletic department. This is where I think Tillman Fertitta and Raphael Stone, I'm sorry. When you're listening to your coach talk about how they tried trapping. They tried, I mean, did you, I don't know if you heard Steven Silas's post-game comments, but. I, I, tr- I made it through like three minutes before I'm like, when he started talking about Sengun's effort on defense, I, I'm like, did this guy bang your mom? I, I don't know what he's got against Sengun, but no one had effort on defense. Not a single player on that court had effort on defense and we're singling out one guy specifically and benching him. Jalen Green hasn't tried on defense in two years, but now all of a sudden we're worried about that Sangoon. Like, I mean, come on. Like, at least, at least let the guy develop. It's you're right, Scott. It's just oh my god. There's a, there's a moment, and and I and I remember this moment. I was coaching uh, freshman A volleyball. I was coaching at Pasadena High School. My middle blocker, who's supposed to be your tallest player, was five foot two. I'm going up against Dobie in district. They got three girls on that team that are six feet tall. Do- Dobie was Dobie was good. And, I remember Dobie, Dobie. Dobie wasn't Lake, but Dobie was good, right? I mean, we're measuring this match. We're not measuring it in points. We're measuring it in minutes. I mean, I'm sitting there calling every timeout I got, using up the whole minute of the timeout just to sit there and like give a break in the, between the barrage of just, you know. But the whole point is there's a moment when you're a coach where you realize – I don't got it. I don't have anything. Silas, I mean, he's obviously there now. He's been there a ways. Somebody put this guy out of his misery, please. I mean, this guy, uh, and, and you're right, he, he's, he's ruining Sangoon. But th- at, at a certain point, you're just being cruel to this guy. I you mean, know, you ever have that friend who can't let go of their dog? Like the dog's got like six tumors. It's limping. It can't get onto the its own bed by itself. You got to pick the dog there. You got to pick the dog up and put it on the grass to go to the bathroom outside. You don't want to do. You don't want to put the dog down because you love the dog. But at the end of the day, that dog is 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 going to be much better off when you put it down. And it's going to be out of pain. That's the Rockets team with Steven Silas. He may be a great guy. 
His dad was a legend. He may have, t- have coached offense beautifully with Luka. You got to put him down. Put this team out of its misery. Let anybody – Stone's got to go too, in my opinion. I mean, I think he does a, a fine job at trading and, you know, stuff like that. But I think he's a, a kind of another Casario type where he may a little bit be a little bit too involved in the day-to-day operations. And, you know, maybe, maybe Silas wasn't able to develop as a coach because of how involved Stone was. I don't know. But right now, Steven Silas is a dog with six tumors that can't eat solid food. That can't go to the bathroom by itself. He is limping home on one leg. And I, I'm sorry, you got to take this thing to the vet and, and get it taken care of. Right. And, and to, to kind of play off, you know, if somebody's sister says, well, but you're going to, you know, ruin their chances at number one picks. And now the bottom three teams all get the same number of pick ball balls. So, and I was looking at the reverse standings. Charlotte's got on a little bit of a run lately. I don't know if you've noticed this. They're 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 uh they're playing feisty basketball. They've won twenty games now. Well, that means that the Rockets are seven games in the win column behind Charlotte. Are we winning seven games in between now and the end of the year? No. So if you fire Silas now and you bring in John Lucas and all of a sudden this team gets in there and starts playing hard basketball chances are you're still going to be one of those bottom three teams. Chances are you're still going to have the same number of ping pong balls, and you're still going to have the same chance at victory that those other two bad teams are going to have. So let's do this. Let's. We had a cat like you described. We had to put, put her in the cat litter box. We had to pick her up and put her next to her food. We had to do all these things. And, and you're right. After a while, you just have to sit there and say, I can't do this anymore. I can't listen to him talk about how we tried to defend Damian Lillard. Uh, come on. Who are you trying to kid? I mean, so let him go. Let John Lucas coach out the year. Let this team give some modicum of effort out there. Let, you know, Jalen Green, Sid Goon develop a little. And then you're going to add at least one good basketball player next year in the draft. Maybe another one in free agency. Maybe two in free agency. And then all of a sudden, you know, now you possibly have a basketball team next year. Right now, you don't. You don't. You're letting Damian Lillard score 71 points. And in the next, you know, the joke is they're playing Denver. And, you know, how many is Jokic going to score on them? What, 80? I mean. I, I think the only thing that helps them against Denver is Jokic likes to pass the ball so much. He'll probably have like 50 and 30 assists or something like that. And, but, and, Murray, and Murray will score 40 plus, you know. I mean, what, yeah. what are we doing? I, I, I think realistically, Red Auerbach could come out of his grave and coach this team, and they're still not going to end up with anything better than a bottom two record. I mean, you could take Phil Jackson, Rudy Tomjanovich, Red Auerbach. Chuck Daly, put them all, mold them all in together in one basketball coach, and you're still a bottom three team in this league. There is no saving that roster. There's nothing you can do. The only thing you can do is, like you said, let's let's say like there's a lot of smoke with the James Harden back to Houston thing. At the end of the day, if you can find some way to develop Sengun, to develop Jalen Green, to be secondary pieces, to be able to attract a star player, finish strong. 
give me 20 solid games down the end. You don't have to win. You're probably not going to win because at the end of the day, the really good teams find a way to separate themselves in the last four or five minutes of a game. But if you play hard for 56 minutes, show me that effort or 48 minutes, uh, you know, show me that effort. Show Sengun start to develop as a, as a ball share, someone you could work through in the post, give Harden, theoretically, someone that he wants to come back home and play with. Give him a scoring option off the ball and Jalen Green that he doesn't have to do everything by himself. Or if it's not Harden, another one of these top-tier free agents that could, could want to come here. Because right now, it's it's not a desirable location. Harden only wants to come because he likes Houston. He's been here before. If you haven't played for this team before and you don't know the organization and this is this is what you see, you're not going to come here. Harden only wants to come home because he had carte blanche privilege to do whatever the heck he wanted here. And, you know, there's a lot of exotic dancers that he probably misses. But for anybody else that's a free agent right now, you're going to overpay. And they're not going to want to come here either way unless you can find a way to make this a desirable place to be on the other based on the other pieces that are already here. If you can find some way in the last 20 games to... Say, Jalen, <laughs> please come back to what you're supposed to be, and send Goon. Hey, we're gonna we're gonna run the offense through you, and you're gonna find the best plays. Watch a ton of Jokic tape and see if you can do your best Jokic impression. That's that's the best way to go. But yeah, long true. story short, here, yeah, Stephen Silas. Yeah, there, I mean, this team has too many, and there's guys on the bench that are good players. I mean, Eason's a good, you know, a nice young player. Josh Christopher's a nice. They're not starters. But, they know, blew the Christopher pick. They, uh, you had you had we had Quentin Grimes on the board, local guy from the University of Houston, who's playing at a higher level than Christopher is right now in New York. And instead, to appease Jalen Green, you went with his AAU teammate and picked Josh Christopher, who is still not a contributor on an NBA roster that's wide open for playing time. I mean, there's no veteran he's competing with out there, and he still can't get onto the court. They, you can't convince me they didn't blow that pick, and they and one hundred percent they should have gone for Grimes there. Well, this is where I think a Jack, John John Lucas would really come in handy is because there are guys that are playing like you 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 drafted you know uh, Ty Ty Washington last year. If Green's injured and Porter's out, why isn't he playing thirty minutes a game just to see what you got? I mean, I mean this is I mean this is where you know to me a John Lucas. You know, Sangu needs to be playing 35 minutes a night, every night. You know, when Green's healthy, he needs to be playing those minutes. You need to be playing, you know, Deshaun Tate, you know, a good amount of time just to see what you got. You need to be playing Jabari Smith, you know, 30, 35 minutes a night. Just every single night. Tell me, you know, show me what you got. You know, play. Yeah. You know. And, and that's where, you know, I don't know what you have at Josh Christopher because – the rotations don't make any sense. And that's, you know, and, and Eason, you know, will, will come in. I mean, every once in a while, you'll see him put up like a 10 and 10, and then the next night he won't play. It's like, what are we doing? Yeah, it's, the rotations are bad. The effort's bad. The preparation's bad. The team's bad. And it comes down to my scumbag of the week, Stephen Silas. So that... Is going to do it for us here on the sports edition of the Snap Hook. Uh, always a pleasure to have this opportunity to sit and chat uh, and, and dive a little bit into what's going on here in the sports world. I mean, we're going to have a lot coming up here by next week. We're going to have a whole nother week of spring training games. We're going to be in the height of March Madness as we start getting into 
some of the automatic qualifiers coming up from the conference tournaments that are going to be happening here soon. Um, we're we're hitting the we're hitting the pavement hard when it comes to sports. Uh, NFL draft coming up, NBA playoffs, NBA lottery, Major League Baseball season starting. So, um, really a great time to be to be joining us and, and getting into the conversation on the Snaphook. Absolutely. All Speaking right. of conversation, Scott, with the draft coming, I know you got a lot of stuff, a lot of a lot of thoughts that you've posted. Um, if people are, are interested in, in reading what you have to say about the Texans or they want to stay up to date on what's coming up with the draft, because, again, we're we're like a month, month and a half away from, you know, the Texans potentially having a new starting quarterback in town. So where can they find that uh, that Texans talk that you're doing? Battle Red Blog, and I'm in the middle of interviewing college experts, so I'm going to the college sites. Who knows more about their teams than, you know, college fans of those? And so I'm interviewing, I've interviewed Alabama so far. I've got Ohio State on the way. So, you know, if you want some inside looks at some of those guys, you know, like your C.J. Strouds, your Bryce Youngs, you know, stay tuned. Battle Red Blog, I got it for you. I'm Tim underscore Costello 10 on Twitter. Uh, Be sure to follow me i'm always happy to in, inter, uh engage with the with the listeners and, and have an opportunity to have a little back and forth uh but until next week which i'm sure will be a great week he's been scott i've been tim and you've been listening to the snap hook <laughs>